everybody got a copy of this? Okay, we'll we'll go from that when we when we get in a little bit in the lesson. Last week, let's look at beginning in verse 39 of chapter 2. Last week, Art <coughs> told you that commentary uh, uh, that he had really uh, compared verse 39 with uh, our scripture in uh, Deuteronomy. And uh, let's just uh, read that a little bit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as our Lord God will call to Himself. So that's, that promise is to us today. Verse 40, And with many other words He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received His word were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. They were all continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor, favor with the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who would be saved. I want to go back up to 41 and 42. So then those that received the word were baptized. There's five points in verse one and uh, 41 and 42 I want us to look at. So they come to know the Lord and as an act of obedience and under art said last week uh, has, it has no baptism has no saving uh, has no saving properties but we do it as obedience and to show the world what has happened in our lives. Verse 42 and they were continually voting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Point two, the apostles' teaching. We've talked about when the Holy Spirit came and John promised us in John 16, he's, Jesus said, He says, and I'm going to go and the Holy Spirit's going to come and He's going to teach you all things and call to your remembering these things that I've said and done. And I know through these little times they were listening to what the apostles were saying and they had the Holy Spirit to illuminate their mind and heart then and they were telling them things. The, the, the 3,000 that were there plus the 120 plus the people that were with them. They were telling them things that the Lord had impressed on them and shown them and they were devoting themselves to this teaching and to fellowship. Now, if you're in a Baptist church and you say the word fellowship, what does that mean? <laughs> Green bean casserole, right? That's not what this means. We've, we've erred so far from what the New Testament talks about fellowship, we can't believe. One of my favorite people to read from is Ray Stedman, who was pastor of uh, Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California for years. He's with the Lord now. 
But he's, he's written this commentary on Acts when the church was young. I want you to listen as Art reads about fellowship, what really fellowship meant in the New Testament. And shame on us for not picking this up. These new followers of Christ devoted themselves to fellowship, which means holding all things in common, sharing together. Here are 3,000 people, many of whom who had come from other parts of the world into Jerusalem for that occasion and who did not know each other. But now they are one in Christ, they begin to love each other, to share their burdens and needs with one another, and to pray together. There was a wonderful sense of community, of commonness, of belonging to each other. That is the intended life for the body of Christ. God has designed that his life should be manifest through a body. And if the body is not operating, then the power of the life of God is not manifest. If this is not happening, the Spirit of God is grieved. And when he is grieved, he does not act. There is no life. The church becomes dull and sterile, manifesting only a lifeless ritual. Fellowship is not an option for Christians. It is an essential. That is why when the Holy Spirit of God begins to move in any congregation or assembly of Christians, he first begins to heal the brokenness of human relationships, getting people to admit to each other their malice, their anger, their frustration, and their grudges, and to forgive one another. That is when life begins to flow once again through the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a long way from what we call fellowship. <clears throat> begins with the brokenness of human relations, getting to know and to admit each other their malice and anger and frustrations, their grudges, and forgiving them one another. And love and life begin to flow through the body of Christ. How many of you are charter members of covenant? Charter members. I wasn't, but I knew about it. There was a commonness, wasn't there, when you started this church? There was a love. There was a togetherness. There was a willing to work together. Uh, and I dare say, maybe we've lost that. But we need to get it back. We've got a pastor who's preaching the gospel, who is lifting up Jesus, and this church will go forward as long as we lift Jesus up. He himself said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Everything we do needs to point people to Jesus. Sports camp. This time together. Everything we need to do needs to point people to Jesus. And that's what the fellowship was about. Back to page, uh, for, uh, verse 42. And to fellowship and to breaking of bread. So there you go. Fellowship and breaking bread was two different functions there. And to prayer. This is the next thing I think we as a church need to do when Pastor Larry has, has indicated this too. We pray. We pray in the area, in the in our order of service, we pray. We open this morning, we pray. But do we really pray? I hope at home you really pray. 
I've been convicted of this in my own life. We really, really need to pray. If we lift Jesus up and pray, this church will move like you've never seen it move before. But we've got to pray. We've got to pray. And that was one of the key, one of the five keys here in the early church. Okay, let's continue. Verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place. And all things, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and began to sell their property and possessions and sharing them with all as one might have need. We're going to talk about this in the next two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, about having things in common. Um, I'll, I'll say this, um, it was at this particular time that that worked. That worked because these people were there. They didn't have anything. They, they, they pooled what they had and met a need. If it was this day, we'd have a bank sale or, or a yard sale or something. But, but they, they, they did what they had to do to meet needs. They meet needs. <clears throat> this ceased soon after this in the early church because <clears throat> as... <coughs> Malcolm Talbot told me one day, he said, Bill, they couldn't sell their seed. Does that make sense? They couldn't sell their land and expect the land to bring them back more. They had to keep their land to produce to have more. And so, uh, after later on, Paul tells us, on the first day of the week, you bring to the storehouse as God has blessed you. We'll get an in, in, into that in the next two uh, two chapters and as we go through the book of Acts <clears throat> okay verse 46 and day by day continuing in one mind in the temple well I got to the temple and I, <laughs> I said what do I know about the temple and I right quick realized I didn't know about a lot about the temple and my engineering came out in me and I said what about it Look at this piece of paper, and we'll talk about the temple just for a minute because it's going to come to play in chapter 3. Does anybody have an idea the size, not of the temple itself, but of the temple area, the temple mount? Anybody got an idea how big or how little that was? Anybody? Look to me like about three or four acres. It was 35 acres, Ben. 35 acres. Now, this is the temple. This is, this is the second temple. Solomon built the temple. When we walk through Isaiah, Isaiah says it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall. Daniel showed how it fell. Nebuchadnezzar took everything. If you've been reading along with us in our Bible and you've gone through... Um, Samuel and, and Kings now the glory of Solomon's temple was something Herod's temple which is this one was built about it says 20 BC and it was around when Jesus was there and Herod's he built it to kind of uh, appease the Jews that he was overseer there so he built the temple Solomon's temple took seven years to build 
he built this one in a year and a half. But it wasn't in the it wasn't the glory and the grandeur and the gold and all the stuff that Solomon's temple was, but it was a temple and it was the seat of worship. Now, yeah, I, I, well, I need to put a disclaimer right quick. <laughs> the literary writings about the temple from Josephus and early Jewish writings and the archaeological finds that have been done in the last uh, century here that we know about don't necessarily agree. So what I'm saying is this is a guy's idea and, and based on information that they had. So it may or may not be correct, okay? But it gives us an idea of where we're going here. Now, I've got a, a dimension up there. It's 450 feet by 700 feet. That, that area right there, Ben, is 13 acres. <clears throat> the temple building itself took 13 acres. Now, as a reference, I've put up there in the corner, a regulation football field is 160 by 360. <coughs> so it's four football fields football field football field football field football field that's how big the temple was that's how big the temple was it's a tremendous place and down there at the bottom of the page it's got a gate called beautiful and it says acts three and we'll talk about that a little bit these side this i don't know which is east or west but either this side or this side of it is called Pop, uh, Solomon's Porch and we'll get to that too in chapter 4. So this was a tremendous edifice. One more thing I'll point out. The sanctuary itself was 150 feet tall. 150 feet tall. And when, when the devil tempted Jesus and he took him up on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, throw yourself down, he would have been in bad shape, you know. It was a it was a high, it was probably the highest place. Well, I know it was probably the highest place in in Jerusalem at the day. So the temple, it's a tremendous facility. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it. I haven't until I got to wondering about the temple. So what I've told you may be right and it may be wrong, but it's a it's a it's a reference type thing that we want to get there. Okay, enough of the temple. Now, let's go back to, to uh, 46. Day by day, continually one, one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, chapter 3. We have no idea how long it's been from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3. It could have been days. It could have been weeks. We don't know. We don't know. But we pick up a narrative now that's going to last for a couple of chapters about Peter and John and a healing. So let's, let's 
read these first <coughs> ten verses. Now, Peter and John were going to the temple in the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was carried along whom they used to sit down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms for those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John go uh, about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. With a leap he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him while he was clinging to Peter and John all the people ran together to them at the so called portico of Solomon full of amazement now Peter and John were going up to the temple in the ninth hour, which was three o'clock in the afternoon. <clears throat> Daniel, when he was in captivity, he, he prayed three times a day, and this was a custom that had come down. They prayed at nine o'clock in the morning, they prayed at noon, and they prayed at three o'clock in the afternoon. And this group of Christians, all of a sudden, prayer meant a whole lot more to them. And they were going to the temple to pray. Now later on when we get into Hebrews another day, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells them it's time for you to put away these Levitical things. And they left the temple. But at this point in their history, they were still continuing to go to the temple. And Peter and John were going at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to pray. Now a man who had been lame from his mother's womb. Okay. Hold your finger there and turn over to, to uh, Acts 4.22. Got me? Just turn the page. For the man was more than 40 years old. So this man, more than 40 years old, was sitting at um, at the gate. Let me continue reading. And the man who had been lame from his mo- his mother's room, who was about forty four or forty years old, had been carried along, whom they sat down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. Now. Jesus healed in the temple. We, we know that from Matthew 21. He healed the blind, the sick, and the lame in the temple. That's when his very last acts, when he cleaned out the temple and he was healing him. But there was a stigma from the Old Testament that if you had anything wrong with you, 
you couldn't go in the temple. The, the men who had this, you ladies were out in the court there, the women's court, but if you were a man, if you were okay, you could go in there. But if you were a eunuch or if you or if you had were blind or lame, you couldn't go because the idea was there was sin in the camp. John 9 tells us of a case where the disciples were passing along and they saw this man who was blind. And they asked Jesus, who sinned that this man is blind? His parents or him? It was just understood that he was a sinner because he was blind. This guy was lame. The, the temple gate was as far as he ever got until a few minutes later. He, he was here. He was begging alms. How long he'd been begging alms, we don't know, but say 20 years. He started when he was 20 and he was 40 then. He'd been sitting at that gate begging alms. Now, Jesus had been through that gate many times. Why didn't Jesus heal him? I don't know. But there's a time and a place that God is honored. And this beggar was getting to his time and place at this particular point. Let's continue reading. <clears throat> begging alms when he saw Peter and John who go into the temple he was he began asking to receive alms but Peter along with John fixed his gaze on him and said look at us have you been to New York City or somewhere else where this is a common occurrence? Maybe in Lancaster, and I just don't know about it. But if a guy's sitting there and he's got his guitar case out or whatever he's got and he's expecting you to pay, the, the probability of him making eye contact with you is very nil. He'll probably keep his head down. He's probably ashamed in some cases. And you just go by and you don't look at him. You throw a dollar or coins into his, his cup there and you keep on walking. That was the same thing here. Human nature hadn't changed in 2,000 years. And the man was looking down. They, they, they went by and Peter saw the man. Now, We've talked about hearing and not hearing. Seeing and not seeing. He saw him. But now he really saw him. You know what I'm talking about? He saw who he was. A man that needed something. And Peter said, Look at me. I told Velta, this brings shades of Alton back to me because when I was a boy and I didn't have my full attention on something Dad wanted, he said, look at me. <laughs> well, maybe you've heard that somewhere. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> so he got his attention. He said, look at us. 
Look at us. And look what Scripture said. And he, be and he began to give them his attention, expecting, expecting to receive something from them. Have you ever heard a sermon about going to church and not expecting something? And then going to church and expecting something? Have you ever discussed the preacher's sermon on the way home or around the dinner table? It's happened at our house. And Belter would tell me, she said, well, I, I really got something out of the sermon today. And more times than not, if I'm honest, and I'd say, I didn't hear a word he said. That's not totally true, but you understand where I'm coming from, you know. Sometimes we're not expecting anything. We're not expecting anything. Did you come to church today expecting something? If you did, God's going to beat you. And he's going he's gonna to give you what you expected. So the beggar was expecting something. Let's see what he said. He expected to receive something from them. Verse 6. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And he seized him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. He leaped and stood upright and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. That's a miracle, right? Let me show you how big a miracle it was. Verse 2 says that he'd been lame from his mother's womb. He, Peter seized him by the hand and he got up and walked. He didn't learn to walk. He didn't take a, a wobbly step. He got up and he ran and leaped and and was praising the Lord. Then you had to go through physical therapy when you had to leave your place. You had to learn to walk again. Right, Brenda? I'm still learning. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean this this guy, he went from zero to sixty in that quick, you know. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> it was a miracle. It was a miracle. And since that day, since that day that Peter took this man by the hand and seized him and said, Walk in the name of Jesus, there have been charlatans that have tried to take, duplicate this situation. Now let me say this. All healing is from God. Okay? Any problem with that? A couple of months ago, I picked up a chop saw, and I, stupid me, it went right down by my nail and, and 
split open my middle finger on this left hand. I had went to the emergency room and I had seven stitches. That's all they did. They just pulled it together. It's healed. That's of God. God made us and He healed us. He will heal us. Just like that. But anytime the Lord does something great, people have tried to been do what Peter did here with his healing. Uh, J.K. Clark uh, says this, and I'm Arch going to read it to you. Listen to what Mr. Clark said in his commentary about this passage. Ever since Peter was used of God in this miracle, others have come forward as self-pronounced faith healers who seek after fame and notoriety as they attempt to repeat what Peter had done. If such healing was so common and so available, the medical community would be rallying around it. However, no self-pronounced faith healer has actually demonstrated the power to heal. When someone would not be healed, the faith healer would announce in a condemning manner that the inflicted person's faith is not strong enough. How strong was the faith of the lame man of Acts chapter 3? He had none at all. Every faith healer has at some time in his or her career been exposed as a fraud by those who were not healed. The context of faith healing is entirely contrary to what took place in every scriptural example of healing. Do you as a Christian have the same resource for healing that Peter had? Yes, we do. Why can we not simply call upon the name of Jesus and heal those who are afflicted? Each healing done in the power of the Holy Spirit has some similarities. Number one, the power for all healing comes directly from God through the Holy Spirit. Number two, the act of healing always comes from a demonstration of pure and true compassion for the one healed. And number three, every act of healing was used by God to bring glory to himself. In no instance was the glory for God initiated by man himself. Healings were not scripted. They were spontaneous acts of true agape love. And I've run out of time. Well, how about we pick up here next week? <laughs> we'll pick up here next week and we'll try to get to Peter's second sermon, the latter part of, uh, of chapter 3. But uh, read and think about what we've talked about today. You know, it's all, of, it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about anybody that claims to 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 heal, uh, and they have been given uh, special powers. But it's all about the Lord. It's all about the Lord. Thank you for being here today. I hope you have a great week. And uh, Larry dismisses, brother. Stop, God. I just praise you.